Restaurant Unstoppable episode 551 with Belinda O'Kelly and David Kasprak. And, and really what makes restaurant design great is having great clients. And great restaurant tours, they are directed and decisive and they're engaged and, and they have a vision. And our job is to pull that out of them understand what their vision is, what they're trying to accomplish, and then bring it to life. So that's what we love. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Cash flow is something every small business is worried about, and it's hard to know at any given moment how you're doing. And worse, it's virtually impossible to predict the future. Until now, welcome to CashflowTool.com, the ultimate companion for any small business using QuickBooks. CashflowTool.com gives you instant visibility on any device anywhere of your cash flow, and it also alerts for unexpected expenses. On top of all this, it analyzes your past finances and projects how much money your company will have tomorrow, next week, and next month. Go to www.cashflowtool.com slash unstoppable and enter promotional code unstoppable at checkout and receive pro features at the essential features price. Introducing Ethic Suite, the first and only misconduct, theft, and fraud reporting platform exclusively for the restaurant industry. Check out restaurantethics.com to see how restaurant employees can report any concerns anonymously, easily, and securely from any device with internet connection. However, if you're an owner or manager, you should check out ethicsuite.com slash restaurantunstoppable for more information on how you can monitor and respond to these reports and stay informed about issues that could affect your business and your reputation. One more time, that's ethicssuite.com slash restaurants unstoppable. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Belinda O'Kelly and David Kasprak. Are you guys feeling unstoppable today? Yes, we are unstoppable. <laughs> yes, that's what I like to hear. So Belinda O'Kelly and David Kasprak are behind O'Kelly Kasprak, a full service architecture, interior design, and project management firm known for bringing a hospitality perspective to all types of commercial spaces. Their portfolio includes a variety of hotels, restaurants, bars, clubs, entertainment venues, sports and recreation facilities, theaters, corporate spaces, retail stores, and specialty projects. Man, you guys are busy. Uh, I can't wait to dive into your knowledge. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about the five things overlooked in restaurant design. Uh, But before we dive into that knowledge, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you guys have for us? Busy is good. Busy is good. Why does that resonate with you so much? Uh, Well, uh, in our case, it means energy. When we're busy, people are, are, the, the atmosphere is fantastic. People are engaged and it translates into our design work. Yeah, so yes. we really like that sort of just feeling uh, proactive and active and, and being sort of taking advantage of, of all the opportunities we have and getting out there. Yes, when I hear you say that, there's a something I always love to say, and I, I always say I'd rather be busy than bored. And I think a lot of people, they always feel so busy. Oh, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. And really... That feeling like I don't know if it ever goes away if you're really pushing hard to be the best you can be. And I think happiness kind of comes when you accept the feeling of of busy and just embrace it and like are okay with it. Uh, What do you think about that? 
I completely agree. You know, I think you got to make your own opportunities and create, create your own life. Right. Yeah. And and if you're doing what you love, then can you really complain? And and you'd be busy uh, and effective. So I guess uh, you're, there's busy work where you're just doing something just to not be bored, but there's also busy, which is being effective and, and moving the ball forward. And that's, that's the busy we like to have. I like it. Great way to get this thing started. And like I mentioned before, we're here to talk about the top five things restaurant owners overlook with their restaurant design. Uh, but before we dive into those top five things, I want the listeners to know that you two are both authorities and we should be listening to you. So why don't you just tell us a little bit more about who you are and what makes you an authority? Belinda, we'll start with you. Sure. Uh, so we have a, a hospitality design firm here in Chicago. Uh, we started the firm about eight years ago and, and have grown uh, up to, I think we've got 17 people now. Um, but we uh, we really focus on things that are hospitality related because uh, we enjoy the we enjoy the field so much. Um, you know, to us, hospitality design is really designing from the guest perspective. So, you know, we like to take each person who's going to walk into the restaurant or hotel that we're working with and think about what are they experiencing as they walk through the space. Um, and typically these projects will have uh, the thing in common that they share is that um, they have an elevated expectation for what it's going to look like. So there's an expectation that it's going to look really cool or feel really amazing or have a really kind of uh, amped up uh, design to the decor. Uh, but then also these projects tend to have a more complex functional program. So they have a commercial kitchen or a more complicated um, you know, operational flow or things that we can kind of dive in on the technical side. So as you can imagine, it takes a kind of an interesting group of people to be able to manage both sides of that. Absolutely. And uh, David, do you want to have the floor? Absolutely. So um, as Belinda said, we've, uh, we've had this firm for eight years, but in fact, I think we've been working together for about 20 uh, Belinda was actually uh, seven years old when we started working together. Yeah, wow. that's true. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, before that, we, we worked at a, another hospitality firm. So uh, I personally have been uh, doing uh, hospitality-type projects uh, for about 30 years now. And uh, what we like about it, a lot of things that uh, Belinda said. Also, I think what's great about this type of work is, is the client base. And, and really what makes restaurant design great is – having great clients, mm. great restaurant tours. They are directed and decisive and they're engaged and, and they have a vision. And our job is to pull that out of them, understand what their vision is, what they're trying to accomplish and then bring it to life. So Man. that's, that's what we love. That must be so amazing. Amazing. I just think about the people who I've interviewed and how they've dreamed so much of their lives of this concept, this idea, this vision that they've been uh, cultivating since as far back as they've ever wanted to own their own restaurant. And you get to bring that to life. That must be so rewarding to to take these these ideas, these visions that these people have, and to to make it tangible, to bring it to life. What's that like? You know, it's, it's a hard business uh, being, being a restaurateur and, you know, it's long hours and, uh, you know, you're away from your family at nights or early mornings and so on. So it's really rewarding, uh, as you said, when um, you get the opportunity to really, you know, help somebody like that to succeed. Beautiful. Uh, so we're here, like I mentioned again, to talk about the five most overlooked restaurant design uh, issues, whatever you want to call them. Before we really dive into those five things, what is it? Why is the, the restaurant industry, as far as design, so unique? Why 
does it make sense to really go to an export expert or to really spend a lot of time uh, uh, planning out and being intentional about the physical space that your guests are going to be in? Yeah, so I, I think there's a few things about it. Um, you know, as David mentioned, restaurants are one of the most difficult things, I think, to do really well and to design from scratch um, because they have so many complicated program elements that need to combine. So, you know, to design a successful restaurant, um, you know, you need to understand kitchen and the back of house and the flow of the equipment and how ergonomics, uh, right? Yeah. How food moves through a kitchen, how your where your dry storage is, how much you need, you know, how the cooking line works, where the expo station is, how you're delivering food. I mean, there's a lot of complexity in a commercial kitchen. How regulations play into it with, Absolutely. yeah, there's so many things to consider. Keep going. Yes. Yeah, so you need to, you know, to design a pretty, you know, just a pretty picture restaurant is one thing, but to design one that works, I think is, is really the specialty. So, you know, we've spent years trying to understand, you know, understanding each of our clients um, background and their operation and understanding how their kitchen flow works. Um, what you really need to do to be able to lay out a space effectively. The uh, other thing I want to just uh, throw in there too, which is something that comes up so many times on the show when people are building out their first restaurant or even their second or third restaurant in a new space. Every space has its challenges with code and things that you, you just might – so many things that you may not consider. But somebody like you and, and David who have spent their entire careers in a city who who know the, the, the regulations in that city, the ordinance in that city, like you know what to look for. You know what things might be lurking behind corners and you can – anticipate these things you want to speak to that at all absolutely um well obviously from a code standpoint there, there's ways there's certainly uh the americans with disabilities act uh there's some specific things that uh, affect uh, restaurant design especially nowadays uh, depending on the municipality there's you know bars have to have low sections and things like that a lot of it's interpretive in terms with the municipality so it's important to try and, and, and really understand your locale and, and the nuances. And then uh, just on a more functional note, uh, it's important to, when you're designing restaurants, uh, the, the atmosphere in terms of the uh, HVAC in particular. Uh, it's very complex systems. You have uh, a lot of air going out. You have a lot of air coming in. And what you, you know, people who don't understand how to design these restaurants it's very easy to end up with a space that is just not comfortable or yeah. you know a build out that it costs twice as much as you thought it would cost <laughs> yeah and that was what i was just going to say a lot of times our work starts before we even hit the pencil and paper and we're touring spaces with our clients to point out why some spaces might be a lot more expensive than others and, and kitchen exhaust and routing exhaust hats are one of the things that drive that often Beautiful. yeah there's one don't you can't imagine how many times people have a great space and they sign a lease and then they have to put five stories of exhaust ductwork on the outside of the building because they didn't realize that they that there was no path up to the roof and so on. Man, I, I think we should get to these five bullets before we get ahead of ourselves and start dropping little bombs of knowledge that are in your list of things we're going to be covering. So, uh, Again, the five things overlooked in restaurant design by restaurateurs. So what is the first thing that is most commonly overlooked in restaurant design? Um, well, I'll kick off the ball here. And uh, from our standpoint, uh, one of the biggies is lighting, 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 lighting. So what you need to understand is that lighting done well is invisible. You don't recognize it necessarily. You just – it just – 
accentuates the space. Done poorly, it really impacts and detracts from your experience. So you do, you really need to understand what it is you're trying to accomplish, the message you're trying to bring, and then design the lighting accordingly. You know, we're not designing, uh, if you're designing an office building, you just have uniform lighting everywhere. That's the last thing that you would want in a restaurant. So you have to have to understand, uh, am I trying to highlight each individual table and make bring to life the table settings? Is there artwork or a feature element that we're trying to highlight? If, if it's my bar, is it the liquor? Is it, and if it is the liquor, is it, you know, bottom lid? Is it back lid? Are we trying to bring the color out of it? Uh, what are we trying to, to, to really uh, understand? And then, of course, uh, on top of that, there's day parts. You know, restaurants open at lunch. Is, is it appropriate to have the same lighting level that you would at dinner time? Lunchtime, it might be a business crowd, and we're trying to, you know, make it a little more business friendly so that people can read, write, communicate with one another. Dinner time, it's, it might be more more romantic. It's a date night. It's uh, couples, and so you want to be able to have adjustability and, and flexibility. Yeah, so I think you know, really, lighting is kind of like the unsung hero in our back pocket when we design spaces. You know, so we, to David's point, we think about what really wants to be highlighted and what really wants to be sort of soft, or how we use lighting to create spaces. And that's the one thing you know, as you're going through drawings and seating plans and things like that. Um, obviously, as you can imagine, the lighting design gets overlooked. Nobody really focuses on what, what lighting is going into spaces. Um, and, and what's kind of exciting now is that there's a lot of strategies that we can use that are not expensive um, to leave us some flexibility and to be able to set those scenes a little bit easier. Um, so there's a lot of um, low voltage systems and, and LED systems now that are very conducive to using dimmers. I mean, I think at this point we put dimmers on almost anything that we can um, because obviously it allows you that flexibility. Um, so there's there's automated controls you can set up and different scenes you can set up, but there's also you know we have a client now and and you know the dimming system is as simple as a black sharpie where we've marked for them where the lighting level should be physically on the light switch that they adjust you know periodically during the day. So there's literally a black line scratched on there that says evening, daytime, you know, and, and things like that. So. Um, you know, now it's just so easy to be able to control all the lighting. Why wouldn't you use that to your advantage, right? Yeah, I'm happy that you, uh, you're you going here because one of the questions I, I had for you as you were going was how do you keep it consistent? Like, are there, are there things we can be doing to make sure that the lighting is the same every night and it's the same every day? And you, you suggest just like marking where those go. Are there any other things, any other uh, techniques to create these standards? Absolutely. Um, there's, you know, several companies out there now make um, systems that uh, employ controls that are automatic. So you can go ahead and set a scene. You know, you might have six scenes that you preset where you say evening, nighttime, party, events, you know, and you can preset these um, so that they um, that they automatically adjust or you press a button. Um, the one thing that, you know, we always recommend is that there's a manual override because, you know, no one wants to be in the private dining space that's set to go tonight and they're trying to do a boardroom presentation and they can't get the lights up, right? Yeah. Um, you, you don't want to be so sophisticated that you can't override <laughs> it. Um, so the, the, the good news here and the bad news, I suppose, is that um, uh, a cautionary note is for somebody starting a new restaurant, we have energy codes now. And some of the things that uh, are, are being required in energy codes include lighting that, uh, you know, is kind of adjustable based on daylights and nightlight and so on. Uh, the good news is those require dimming systems, which 
are exactly what Belinda was talking about there. You kind of get that flexibility as part of that. The flip side of that is that these systems are not inexpensive like they used to be. So whereas we used to have a, a marker and a Sharpie and mark where, where the dimming system is now, uh, restaurateurs need to be aware of this because their lighting packages now are 20% more expensive than they used to be. Now they'll make up that, that uh, over time in energy savings, but that doesn't help you when you have a budget up front. So just something to be aware of. So I'm curious, you mentioned a lot of these technologies that are out there. Can you drop any uh, any services out there that you guys tend to go to more often that you that you lean towards that you can share with our, our audience that might be doing a build-out right now? Oh, I, I would say a couple things. I mean, I think Lutron is a dimming system. They make a lot of dimming systems that we use um, periodically, certainly the more sophisticated um, things. And then we've used, also used lighting designers and, and leaned on some of our manufacturers' representatives to help us kind of work through that. Cool. Yeah, we do, we do most of our uh, lighting design in-house. Um, it's just from our experience, it's, it's part of controlling the overall atmosphere. But we will bring in the experts as we need to. And a lot of these uh, control systems are uh, the, rep, the reps will, uh, the representatives that are selling the systems will help with the nuances of how to set it up. And they'll even come out and train the uh, train the, the uh, staff after it, when it opens up. So, I mean, I do have another question, but I think it's going to be a hard question to answer because there's no one correct answer. It depends on what you said earlier. What are you going for, right? Like when you're when you're thinking about the lighting, I think you have to start with the end in mind. What are we trying to achieve and then work back from there? Uh, but what is the right type of light, lighting? You go into some restaurants, right, and it's so dark that you can't even read the menu. Is there like a rule of thumb or uh, a standard that you can share with us to kind of help guide us in making those those settings? Yeah, so there's a couple really good key things, and that's a that's a great question, Eric. Um, one thing is color temperature of the light. Um, so I think everybody's seen where you know you have a nice amber glow to a light, and then someone's obviously replaced one of the bulbs with a fluorescent. Uh, you know, replacement, and you can see that you have a yellow light and a, a blue light kind of coming out of the same fixture. Um, I think we've all probably noticed that even in our own home. Um, so the degree, the Kelvin degree of lighting, which is a technical term to talk about the color of light, uh, is very important when you're talking about restaurants. So generally speaking, you want to stay to the warmer side of that. So, um, you know, you want to avoid the cooler light, the more blue light, because it makes food not look good and it makes you feel like you don't want to eat and it makes it the atmosphere feel a little bit cold. So I believe, you know, you really want to stay probably closer between, what do you say, 2,500 and 3,000? 3, yeah. yeah, and then when you get into more of like a corporate setting, for example, you're going to end up more at like the 6,000, which is a super blue-white light um, kind of level. So what, like, what is like, the... Sorry, what's the gauge that you're talking about? You're saying 2,500 to 3,000 or 6,000, the corporate bowl? Kelvin, Kelvin, which is, which is uh, basically a, a measure of temp- It's a degree uh, of temperature. So basically, uh, the hotter that a, that a light burns, Kelvin-wise, the, uh, the spectrum of light that's emitted is, is as, it, as it's lower, it's, it's more yellow. And, and then as it gets brighter it gets whiter and whiter so. so are calvins are they something that's uh published or like included on the packaging how do we know if you go to home depot and you and you got an led lamp and you looked at it it will tell you the color temperature on it usually they for residential they're 
2700 3000 3500 Cool. Thank you for getting into detail. This is where the, the good stuff is. Um, yeah, this the, is the geeky side of restaurant design. <laughs> yeah, man. We're going to the next level. That's what I like to, to hear, though. Uh, Can I mention one other thing please, about please. Asphalt metrics? Um, the other thing is uh, we call it the, the 0, 5, and 10 rule. So if you want to make a difference in how you are highlighting something, you have, you have you have a, a standard amount of light, and that would be your, your base level. If you want something to, then you have a second tier, which are, are things that you want to bring some attention to. And the light level should be three to five times brighter on that sub, on, on that element than your standard temperature, than your standard uh, light level. And Beautiful. then, if you really want to pop something, a very important things. 10 times your level. And that's something that an engineer or lighting designer can help you with. But um, that that's kind of a metric just to understand what you need to do in order to really make things uh, spectacular. Awesome. And Dave, you mentioned something earlier too, um, how we use lighting to almost stage, right? And how when you're thinking about lighting, you need to be thinking about how that light is affecting every table and using the light to almost create the, to make the, the table a stage, like, like how you'd be watching theater, like the lighting's so specific to, to spotlight certain, it's like an, the experience, right? But how else can we use lighting to influence behavior and emotion um i don't know that's probably an episode in itself but <laughs> is there like any like nugget quick nugget you can drop on us before moving to the next bullet uh, i would say you know certainly lower light levels are going to be a more intimate and softer setting so if you want a low energy more conversational vibe low lighting low lighting levels are going to be your friend uh if you want to amp up or create a higher energy space i would say a little bit brighter um, you know, more of a bar more setting. contrast. Yeah, yes. more contrast. That's a good point. More contrast. So, and then, and then in this world of LEDs, um, you have the opportunity to color shift. So, the same light that uh, gives you white light can be adjusted to be more amber, or to be you could you could have a blue hue if you wanted to, or red. So, you have the flexibility to if you use the proper lighting to actually dramatically change look and feel by really shifting the color beautiful i think we've gotten to some good detail on lighting is there anything else that you guys didn't mention that you want to drop on us before going to the next thing that restaurateurs most commonly overlook in restaurant design no i think i think that pretty much wraps it up i think you know as we mentioned lighting is kind of the the unsung hero and can make or break a space awesome all right the next bullet that you guys dropped on me that was stay on brand. So why is staying on brand so important when it comes to uh, overlooking restaurant design? Yeah, so I, I think this is critical. And I, and I would say, number one, you know, obviously know your brand. So, uh, you know, I think we have we, we work with everybody from an individual owner operator who just wants to make great food in a small space to large national chains. Um, and I think the, the difference is that, you know, the national chains probably have gone through branding exercises and worked with a consultant and they have their top five bullets that they know are their messaging communication. Um, but even the individual restaurateur that just wants to make good food has a brand. Um, so everybody that's out there and putting stuff out into the world is, is, whether they know it or not, created their own brand. So I think the important thing is to know what that is and to be conscious about it, right? Um, so when we start working with a client, we will use keywords or images or, you know, things to sort of put together on a vision board to help distill or define that brand. Generally speaking, the shorter and the most concise it is, the most successful it is for us to work from. Um, so, yeah, so just highlighting that what Belinda just said there, 
if you if it takes you a paragraph to try and explain what your what your restaurant is, that is not as effective as if you can distill it down to a sentence or two. Can you give me an example? Is there like a a sentence that you remember somebody giving you to work from that was just like oh perfect? I mean, it's going to be hard to recall verbatim, but can you give me like an aerial view of what that sentence would look like? American Diner, let's say, or or you know. Uh, Route 66 Diner. Okay. That gives you a visual of a specific genre, a specific type of restaurant. Okay. Versus, oh, you know, we're going to do a diner that is uh, going to be, uh, you know, a road roadside concept with, uh, you know, tour, aimed towards a demographic of this, that, and so on and so forth. Got you. Belinda, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, yeah, I would I would say, you know, as you're starting to figure out what your brand is, the more concise and the more focused you can be, the better. Um, and, you know, you can use whatever tools might be the most familiar to you to start to develop that. So even if you're not working with a firm or a designer, you know, start a Pinterest page, start collecting things that speak to you. Um, you know, I think one of the things we find uh, that's in common with almost every restaurateur we work with is the passion, right? So everybody feels strongly about what they're doing. Um, so to the degree that you can put something together that helps you communicate that to who you're working with, um, that's going to be the, the single most important thing that you can do to get um, to get that message out there. And, and I would say, you know, the other pieces to that is, you know, the, the point of number two, stay on brand is don't be careful of letting anybody or anything water that down. So, you know, I think there's a, a piece here where people try to be everything to everyone and they look at all these different things and say, well, we can do this and we can do that and we can add this. And, you know, the people down the street did this and let's change it and do that. I think you have to be really careful doing that um, unless it's really in line with what your core brand is. Um, so you, need to, you, you need to have focus. So um, that's the other, the other piece of this. So a lot of times, we will have people come in and they have seen, you know, I like this at this place. And I like that at this place. And, and over here, this is great. And I want to put all those things together. And really, a lot of times people will have 15 great ideas. Five of them are appropriate to the concept. And sometimes less is more. And taking, you know, really focusing on what's important to you and, and what works best for your brand and your restaurant and making that fantastic is more effective than having a bunch of things that compete with one another. So you want your public to come in, see it, understand it, and, and in a perfect world, they, they get it right away. Yeah. Uh, the more you guys talk, the more I, I always go back to uh, the seven habits of highly effective people. I think it's the... I can't remember which habit it is. I want to say it's like the second habit begin with the end in mind and really just think about how you want people to feel, how you want it to look, what, what you want to communicate and how can I, you start there and you work backwards to achieve that is what keeps echoing in my head. Is that safe to say? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that we do find a lot is that people have trouble articulating it, even though they know in their mind what it is. Mm. Uh, so oftentimes, you know, our first session might be a brainstorming session where we're literally asking those questions to bring that out, right? Yep. How do you want people to feel? Is this space a high energy space? Do you want people to come in and high five their buddies? Or do you want people to come in and, and sit with their significant other and have a quiet conversation? You know, we start asking these soft things and that leads us to get to that kind of brand statement. So, so this thing, if you don't have it right away and you just have some ideas, you know, that's something that we help with a lot too, is bringing that out and making that brand statement. Yeah. You also mentioned creating a Pinterest page to keep track of things that resonate with you as you travel. And I know a lot of people I've heard are even just using Instagram uh, to when, when they, when they, 
go, they take a picture of something and they know that they can reference it, uh, like in the future when they are building out their own restaurant, just kind of capturing things and documenting somewhere. Uh, so you can use Pinterest, you can use Instagram, but just take pictures of the things that resonate with you and that you want to recreate in the future. Love that piece of, yeah, we, we start more design projects with people's Pinterest pages or with 25 texts of photos they took than, than, than not. <laughs> yeah, awesome. But that's really that literally painting the picture of perfection. Like this is what I want. And how much easier is that for you when you have a literal picture of what they're looking for? Yeah. Awesome. We, we occasionally have had a client come in that, that doesn't, you know, they may know how to cook. They may know how to, how to do, you know, great, make great food. They don't have any vision of what the space should be, how it should be organized, and so on. And those are actually the hardest restaurant tours to design for because we are then implying we are then trying to sift through, find out what they're trying to do, and or we're imposing our vision based on, on our interpretation, what they're telling us onto their design. And uh, you know, that gets tricky. It gets solved by the by the Pinterest pages and so on. So your know, years of you know, culling things and seeing what you like that, that helps so much. Yeah. It's, it's also ended with us dragging that client around to 25 different places, sitting down in there and saying, how do you feel here? <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, okay. So let's move on to the third bullet that you shot me when it comes to the most common things, five things that restaurateurs overlook in restaurant design. Uh, number three, you have to design for some flexibility. Okay. So, uh, none of us nail anything 100% on the nose from the beginning all the time, right? Um, so there is going to be something that you're going to have to leave yourself room to adjust on. And I, I think the big things that, that we see is, um, you know, in terms of looking at your menu, you know, better to start with a few things you do well and add on in the future based on what people ask for. You know, operationally, kitchen equipment, leave yourself some room, you know, think about different different peaks and valleys in terms of of, of quantities. Think about, you know, a little bit of menu variety. Um, you want to leave yourself a little bit of space maybe on the line to add something in the future. Um, certainly with seating layout, this plays a big role too. Um, you know, we have one client who was convinced that their primary focus was going to be the theater crowd. So they had a, a larger formal dining room. They had, you know, they, they really thought that they were going to have these seatings that aligned with a particular theater schedule and that was going to be their primary um, target. And then what ended up happening, they had a very small bar section and a very big formal dining room. What ended up happening is uh, a huge amount of happy hour crowd they didn't expect showed up. So then you want to be able to, you know, kind of move that line if you can from, you know, take out a few of those formal dining low tops and put in some high tops and expand to, to kind of cater to that need. So you do want to be able to adjust um, a little bit. You know, the, uh, the other thing about uh, flexibility is, you know what they say about the stock market, right? You can't predict it. Don't try to predict the future. Uh, that applies to some degree for uh, restaurant design as well. So we all know that it's a very dynamic business. That uh, you know what's what's hot now, five years from now, likely is going to look dated. So it's important to understand that things do change and what you can kind of plan in advance to help that cause later on. So for as an, as an example, materials wise, there's certain things, materials or, or elements that are going to be fixed and not easily changeable should probably, you should give some thought to what that material is, make sure that it is 
somewhat timeless. Can you give me some examples of some materials that people may go with that's hard to fix or some of the more timeless materials? Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the things we're going to start to see here soon that will start to make restaurants look like they're a little bit more dated might be some of the really gray-toned reclaimed wood because that was so hot, you know, three and five years ago. And we have some of our clients that went kind of nuts with it. Um, so that, that's one that pops into my head. I think there's always going to be a place to use reclaimed wood, but some I think some of our, our local establishments here went a little nuts with it. There's always a hot color. You know, every, every year we have... Uh, there's a color forecast that comes out and, you know, what the colors are. And, uh, and you'd be surprised for people who aren't aware of it, um, how much of your product design starts to, to reflect that. Um, yeah, some of those colors are hot colors. And if you take those and incorporate them into your seating and fabrics and so on, five years from now, they may very well be dated. Now you have to go back in and reupholster your furniture as opposed to, hey, I can paint a wall that color and in five years, it's a coat of paint and I can change it out. So when you're, when you are acting on trends, be mindful on whether or not the, the places that you're using uh, to the, the services you're using to bring out these trends aren't something that's going to lock you in for the long term. Yeah. I mean, I would say the big thing, like number one, stay true to your brand and your concept, right? So things that you're doing from a design perspective, we want to tie back to the concept. But to David's point, anything that you're doing that, you know, what we kind of think about, and we do this a lot more on the hotel side too, is, you know, if you had to come back and refresh it in five to seven years, what would be easy, inexpensive things to refresh while still being still being able to have a good visual impact? Um, so a lot of times that ends up being paint. Um, maybe some like fixture replacements, you know, some things that are fairly easy and inexpensive to change and get a big bang for your buck out of. So are there anything or are there any materials that we should be staying away from right now that you see a lot of people trending uh, in doing, making these investments and really hurting themselves in the long run? Um, I, you know, I think the biggest thing for me that I, that I would say is try to stay authentic. So if you want, you know, something to look like rough hewn wood, Rough hewn wood is probably your best bet, not a tile that has rough hewn wood printed on it. Um, you know, so I would say authenticity is probably the biggest thing that that we try to work with is keep, you know, making uh, materials read as to what they are versus I printed this on a tile and then used it over here. And it, I, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, did you want to chime in? I was going to say, pardon me, but uh, the, uh, another example might be, uh, you know, right now, gold tones are hot as far as metals go. That hasn't been hot for as long as I can remember. Um, <laughs> 70s or whatever the case might be, they, that may be hot for five years. Just like, just like you know, gray kitchen cabinets in your, re- in your residence, hot right now, five years from now, will that be something everybody goes, hey, I know, I know when those cabinets are redone. So it's just something to be mindful of. Cool. Uh, you mentioned something earlier that I want to come back to, and I think that was uh, keeping some flexibility. Uh, and you mentioned in the kitchen too. So when we're talking about design, I think a lot of people get in trouble with kitchen design. Uh, it's, it can be very complicated. So are there any like specific examples of things that you can give me, uh, things to be wary of when building out the kitchen to, that you want to leave some wiggle room with? Yeah, I mean, I would say that the things that we kind of coach our clients through is number one, you know, start start with your menu, look at it very critically, pick out the things you do really well. Um, don't put pressure on yourself to add more and more menu items. If you need one piece of equipment for a single menu item, really rethink that. Mm-hmm. Why is that? 
just because of the, you know, you don't know if it's not part of the core menu you're delivering and you're not going to use that piece of equipment for a few things, it, it can sometimes be, you know, not only an added expense, but you're taking up space in your kitchen and making your function a little more complicated to accommodate it. So, um, you know, so if you need, if you only need a mixture to make one thing that's a dessert and you're only using it, you know, for a very small percentage of your menu, just really think of how critical that is. Or can you use your other equipment to make something that's maybe a little more versatile? One thing that comes up a lot on the show is building into your budget or putting aside, um, you know, every month or quarter or whatever, a percentage to go back into updating and staying fresh. Uh, what percentage, what budget should we, you, would you recommend that we put aside and how often should we refresh it? You know, I would say um, if you're looking at a five to seven year cycle, let's say, I would, I would think that you are probably looking at putting away uh, Ten percent of the cost of a renovation every year, and what and by that means so that that would assume that after five years you would have fifty percent of the of, of what you put into it initially uh, available to you to refresh, and that should be fine because half, if you've done it well, half of your infrastructure is is holding up well and is still looking great and is timeless, and that gives you the flexibility to kind of concentrate and update in, in specific locations. Got you. Uh, did you want to add anything to, to that, Belinda? Um, yeah, I would say, I mean, I think that's, that's probably right on. I, you know, I would say most of the, re- the restaurant tours that we work with, you know, if they do have a program where they're setting stuff aside, you know, that's probably an anomaly just because of the nature of the business and so many things that are thrown as, as curveballs at us. Um, you know, one of the things we're starting to see around here, we're, we're in uh, Chicago in the West Loop area, which is a pretty hot restaurant area right now is we're seeing tons of these pop-ups, right? Uh, where they're coming in and the whole design is that they're going to operate for three months and, and move out again, right? So it's, you know, it's interesting the way that the business is changing a little bit. Um, you know, some of the traditional budgets that we look at are maybe less applicable as we look at different restaurant um, operational plans. Cool. All right, we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll wrap up with those two final uh, bullets that you shot over to me, the five things that restaurateurs most overlook in restaurant design. If you listen to Restaurant Unstoppable, I'm sure you've heard me say it before, but I'll say it again. There are two things that you need to let determine your growth. The first thing, that's people. The second thing, that's cash flow. And we've got you covered on the cash flow part of things because I'm working with CashflowTool.com, the ultimate cloud-based solution for your business. CashflowTool.com is simple powerful and predictive it's simple because it requires no data entry it's always up to date and it works on any device anywhere it's powerful because with its built-in cash flow calendar activity feed and anomaly detector you instantly know all aspects of your cash flow with no surprises and it's predictive because you know your cash flow today and you can anticipate it tomorrow head over to www.cashflowtool.com unstoppable and enter promotional code unstoppable at checkout and you'll receive pro features at the essential features price all right i have a question for you 
How can an anonymous employee reporting program be a profit center for your restaurant? Hmm. Well, for starters, fraud alone represents a staggering loss to the restaurant industry, with an estimated $40 billion in losses in the U.S. in 2017 alone. And this does not include the losses and costs associated with the more than 540,000 calls made to the U.S. EEOC in 2017, resulting in millions of dollars in penalties and legal costs for restaurant owners and investigators related to claims of harassment and discrimination. So do I have your attention? Good, because there's more. Employee tip-offs about misconduct continue to be the most common method for detection and prevention, but employees are often deterred from reporting their concerns directly to supervisors because they're afraid that there's going to be retaliation or they might lose their job or something, and I get it. But with Ethics Suites Anonymous and web-based RestaurantEthics.com, you can provide a safe, secure, simple, and anonymous communication channel between you and your employees to help protect your hard-earned reputation and assets. Go to EthicsSuites.com slash restaurants unstoppable and you'll get three additional months so for the cost of 12 months you'll get 15 months or head over to the show notes and find the banner and you can use the link there we're back and we're going to wrap up with these next two bullets uh what is the fourth thing that restaurateurs most commonly overlook in restaurant design i think a lot of thought has to be given to number four here which is seating mix so everybody spends, first of all, a lot of time thinking about the quantity of seats. I, I need to have a 100-seat restaurant in order to make money. Well, that I have uh, 25 four-top tables. Well, if one person came in and sat at every one of those tables, I can my maximum capacity in that rest, restaurant is 25 people. So you have to understand who your kind of who your core clientele is. There's a lot of four-person parties? Is it going to be business and it's two-person parties? Uh, are there singles? Is it you know lunch business and individuals are coming in? And that would certainly affect the quantity and size of your tables and your mix, you know, two tops, four tops, individual seats. So that's something that is really, you know, the tabletop count is probably more important than the seat count in some ways. Okay. Uh I think you might have had it on your your list of things, the bullets you're going to tackle underneath this bullet, a sub bullet. But there's a huge trend right now in the community tables. What what are your feelings on those community tables? Uh, so communal tables, we've actually like this has been sort of an interesting study uh, in urban locations. Communal tables can be great, you know, especially we find in in super urban locations in a more casual style restaurant. People are very open to sitting at them. They'll use them. The seat counts are good. Uh, where we find that it gets more troublesome is where we get into more suburban locations or more fine dining establishments. People seem to want to not sit too close to other people. They want more space. Um, the other thing I think plays a big role in uh, communal tables is service style. If it's a casual beer and mussels sports bar kind of place where they, you, know, you want people to come in and interact with each other and the energy and the vibe is high and active, communal tables make a little more sense. If it's a more, you know, kind of tavern atmosphere with low lighting and it's more for intimate conversation, a giant communal table in the middle of your restaurant is going to look like a giant empty eyesore. Mm. Uh, So I don't think we have to add anything more to that. Uh, One other thing that I see often uh, is having like, like blocking off an area that's more like, like comfortable seating, like cushion seating, like a, like a leather chair. Where do you guys stand in that? You know, I think um, a little bit cautionary. Certainly, it, it sets a tone. So let's say you have kind of a loungy area and so on. That is certainly great for uh, 
probably more for liquor sales and, and bar type seating. Uh, if you are going, going to go for that, you have to understand also how people are going to eat there, if they're going to eat there. So you know, if it's just a drink, it's fine to have kind of a lounge type setting. A lot of times what we're doing now is uh, we're using, we're creating booths that look like um, sofas as, as the booth seating and they're kind of movable. But you have to be careful because you have to design it specifically for that use so that it has the right cant to it so that, uh, you know, the the way you sit in a sofa or a lounge chair is different than the way you sit in a dining chair. So we can make it look, we can make a, a lounge chair look like a, uh, a uh, sit like a dining chair and still look like a, a lounge chair, but you need to plan for that. Yeah, I think the big note there is just making sure that it's food friendly. So, you know, a lot of seating, even though the nuances, as David mentioned, the angle of the back, exactly how high the seat is, some of that can be much more food friendly and some of it can be very awkward to eat at. And it's literally the matter of four inches. Mm -hmm. uh, what are the things you see people do wrong? Uh, well, I'll, I'll mention one thing, and it's, it's a nuance. The difference in the table height relative to the chair height, if you are an inch off on that, it is very noticeable. In other words, uh, you know, if the if the chair is a little too low relative to the table table height, you feel like you're, you're like like your face is in your food. Yeah. Uh, or else, and, and the other thing, of course, is in booths or banquette seats, when the table is a little too far away from the booth, and you're leaning, you have to lean over or sit on the edge of your seat in order to eat. Mm -hmm. it really affects the the quality of your experience. Yeah, I think I think one other thing that we always kind of giggle at that's that's super uncomfortable, and a lot of times people can't put their finger on exactly why it's uncomfortable. But whenever you have seating that's either dining height or even worse, lounge height, but right up against bar height seating, inevitably people in the bar area are going to stand or you know stand at their seats or whatever, and it's extremely uncomfortable to have someone's you know. In the worst case, someone's backside or someone's back to you that is so much higher than you when you're seated low mm. uh, makes you feel very invaded on and very kind of vulnerable, and it creates a very uncomfortable setting. So what's a good rule of thumb, uh, a space to keep high top seating away from low top seating? You at least want a pathway between, a circulation path. So I would say four to six feet. Okay. Unless you're going to have a some sort of a barrier. Yeah, you know, a half you can, wall or... You can have a banquette seat that backs up or a half wall or something like that that creates a barrier. Then obviously you can, you're demarcating the areas and, and you can... Awesome. What other, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think one thing that a lot of bar owners did maybe five and six years ago that was kind of a, 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 an interesting thing to watch happen here in Chicago is everyone thought, oh, lounges are cool. Let's throw some lounge seating into my bar. Um, and we saw so many cases where it just didn't work and no one sat there or, you know, it was super uncomfortable or it was and you're eating up a lot of real estate, right? With the lounge. Seating. That's what I was thinking, too. Like you, with those big, bulky, comfortable chairs, like you might put one chair like that one chair could easily be a four top. Right. Or, or two large sofas and one person goes and sits in one of the sofas and it kills the whole grouping. Right. I mean, unless you have like really if you have big margins that you can absorb that if it's fine dining or something like that. I don't know if uh, it makes sense sometimes. They also they also call it lounge seating for a reason. So if you're trying to create energy, that may not be the type of seating you want. Yeah. You have high top seats where you can sit at a height where. While you're sitting, you're you're close to eye level with somebody who's standing, so that creates a lot more energy and a lot more synergy. You mentioned something earlier about uh, the right 
height at which you should sit at a table. Is there a, like a, a measurement you can give us? Is there like a, a rule of thumb that a standard that we can make sure that we're in that, that, that comfort zone? Yeah. I mean, and there's very specific guidelines. So in generally speaking, your dining height is going to be 30 inches and your dining height chair is going to be somewhere between 19 and 21, maybe 22 inches. If you go anywhere below like 18, you're going to start to get into the you know, an uncomfortable setting. Um, so the, the, we're literally down to the inch in a lot of these relationships. So I'm curious, uh, I've something I've experienced a lot. Whenever I sit at a bar, I feel like the bar height is where they, they miss it most often. Like you'll be sitting in the bars, like at your chest. Oh well, uh, yeah. There's, sorry. Go ahead. No, that's, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say there's two major issues we see at bars. Um, one, the height, I, I think most bars are usually 42 inches and they should be 42 inches. Cause that's what all the seats are kind of designed for, um, that are bar height. I think one of the things I run into a lot is they miss the overhang. So your knees bang the um, die wall of the bar. Oh, right. There's also um, at least you know, a traditional bar used to have a, a lip on it. We used to call it the Chicago here in Chicago. It was a Chicago uh, profile and uh, it prevented drinks from spilling off the bar. And, and it gave you a place to rest your elbows, which was great. The converse piece of that is when you have a plate and you're serving a meal there, you have you can't get the plate close enough to you to eat. So you're kind of leaning over that that rail in order to feed yourself. So you have to kind of understand what you're trying to do at the bar. And, so I guess it comes down to, start, again, starting at the end of mind, like are you more food focused where you want the food to be the centerpiece or are you more uh, drink focused where like who cares about the plate being like, are you doing shareables right. where it's wings and like you're not going to have the wing plate like right up underneath your chin? Right. That's exactly and, true. And there's ways to accomplish some of both as well. You know, so I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's just trying to, you know, plan accordingly, like you said. Uh, one other thing that I saw on your list of, of things to consider underneath this bullet is uh, flexibility. I see this happen a lot where you go into a place and you want to maybe push two seats together. You want to create a, a, a six top by moving a four top and a two top together. Is that what you mean by flexibility? Well, there's a few things I think. Um, one, you know, certainly one of the things we like to put in a lot of a lot of restaurants is, you know, the one-sided banquet where you can do two tops that can be ganged together to serve two, four, six, eight, ten. You know, something where you can accommodate a large party, or you can accommodate three smaller parties. Um, you know, there's a reason that a lot of people do that. It's a super flexible setup. Uh, I think the other thing though is to just really think about the uses that this space is planned for. So. You know, if you are a, um, a fine dining restaurant, then, then you're going to put, you know, you'll be able to look at your reservation counts and understand that you're going to be seating mostly twos, fours, sixes. You know, if you have a big bar area, you have to think about how you might dial that up and back for happy hour or how, you know, how your different influxes throughout the day are going to affect you. Uh, one of the things that we see that I think is a really important point um, is you want to avoid the giant empty dining room look at six o'clock when the first people come in, right? So, um, so one of the things that we do a lot is use private dining space that can open up to the restaurant or be closed off um, so that you can kind of make your restaurant look like it's multiple sizes based on your peaks and valley times of your seating. So it, also, that, it also gives you a, a private dining space, which yeah. is a, certainly <laughs> a, a piece as well. So uh, something else then? Uh, on the subject of that is if you have a private dining space, you know, booths are not your most flexible piece. Mm -hmm. People love booths, but if you're going to have a party, booths are not your friend because you can't, you can't set up 
table space in different ways and so on. So you have to be mindful of that. And then the, the other piece would be um, tabletops. Are you, gonna, are you going to have a tablecloth on them or are you not? That will affect, uh, if, if you want to at lunch have a, have a, a surface that you can uh, use exposed or with a, some sort of a play setting or whatever, that affects your design versus I'm always going to have a tablecloth on this. So. so what would you recommend? What, what would you say is the best approach when it comes to seating as far as, I mean, obviously there's a lot of things to take into consideration, but what's the most flexible option? Well, I think we, uh, if, if you're going to use, uh, again, booze or bank hats is to keep them along the perimeter of a, a space you're trying or use that to define a space and leave a center area where you can group tables together. So I have uh, booths on the edge of the of the uh, dining room, then there's space for two rows of tables. Aisle, and then, you know, aisle on each side of those, and then there might be a banquet or another row of booths or something else there. So that center area can then become flexible space where you can you can do a party if you want to or, or you know, a large group of people. Gotcha. Awesome. Anything else you want to add to seating mix before we move on to the next and final bullet? I think we did pretty well on that. I don't know. I can't think of anything else that it's. <laughs> I got one thing that just popped into my mind, and I think it, it's an issue that will make or break a dining experience, which is a rocky table. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, it kind of falls into the, the seating mix. Uh, what advice do you have? Any tools or resources or recommendations to fix those rocky tables? So when we specify tables, we also, we always put a little bit of thought into what they call the glides, which are the little things that uh, a lot of of times they screw into the bottom of the bases that help, they're they're called glides or levelers that help level the tables, right? Yeah. Um, Inevitably what happens is they get shifted around and moved and and they need to be readjusted. So, you know, that's something operationally that, you know, if you specify a quality table and base, you're going to have levelers on the bottom that you can adjust. But having your operational staff or your bus staff before service run around and just make sure they're not wobbling all over the place is always good. Mm -hmm. Or make sure you have a lot of matchbooks. (laughs) (laughs) There's one product that's been mentioned a couple times in the show. I'm pretty sure it's called the Flat Tech. And it's a invention where it basically uses hydraulics uh, underneath the table to when a table's rocking, there's, it's really interesting how it works. And like over time it settles uh, flat with using hyd- like hydraulics underneath. It's, it's so interesting, but people swear by it and like, you'll never have a Rocky table ever again. Well, that, that I mean, the, show notes. The, the, the key to that kind of thing, cause that sounds amazing. It, you know, it always comes down to cost, right? Yeah. It's uh, the same price as a regular table base. No problem. If it's more expensive, it's putting the value on what that is. Right. I hear you. I'm going to um, Google search it real quick. I think it's on actually Amazon flat tech. I'll give you a, a, a price flat tech table base. So on Amazon, you can find them for how many do we get in one $91? Is that the whole, it might be the whole leg there, the base. Of yeah. So obviously that, you know, that's not a crazy expensive thing to do. Um, we had one, this was like probably six or seven years ago. We talked to a client about, uh, they had an idea to put GPS on each table so they would know where the, the tables were coming out of the kitchen and the amount of money spent to do that at that time was so cost prohibitive. It was, it was kind of crazy. Now, you know, I think, I think a lot of restaurants do that because the technology has come down so much that it is feasible. So I think, uh, 
they actually they sell them by the entire base, which is like the like the the rod that goes down to like the feet and it connects to the table itself, which is like the ninety one dollars. And then they also sell uh, flat tech equally equalizer, which or flat equalizer, which is like just a little thing that screws on to the bottom of the if you already have the base, and that's twenty six dollars. Yeah, well, that sounds like a very affordable option. We'll have to look at that. So I'll throw that into the yeah. uh, a link into the show notes, and use my links, guys, because that would be an affiliate link, and you would be helping out the podcast. And thank you. In uh, I, I think the uh, kind of a subtle point there between yourself and Belinda is that uh, anybody who's who's designing a restaurant needs to have a a little bit of a cushion from a finance standpoint to be able to do some of these little subtle niceties that will affect the dining experience. Yeah. Especially a rocking table. If you have, if your if your restaurant is littered with rocking tables and napkins and, you know, uh, matchbooks, it just looks crappy, you know, and and it just ruins the experience. I, I know I go back, shit crazy when i'm sitting like if, if, especially like a coffee shop and i'm trying to work uh, i have like my coffee in my computer and my 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 coffee or my teas like rocking and spilling all over the table it drives me crazy so like it will drive people out it's something to consider it's worth investing in i think absolutely personally. um all right this is the last and final bullet uh make it a complete package what do you mean by that when you say make it a complete package and again we're talking about the five most un or most overlooked restaurant design design issues so, Eric, you, you mentioned earlier something that really hits it on the head as far as a you know, comprehensive design. And that, that restaurant design is akin to theater design. So you're creating a, a, an entire experience. So it's, it's not only the, it's the food, of course, but it's the table settings. It's the chairs. It's the lighting. It's the music. Is there, is there music? It's the, uh, what, what level is it? Uh, is there aroma? Do you is it fresh baked bread and that kind of subtly wafts through the space? What about your menus? Are they consistent with what you're trying to do? The font, the style, the the size of the menu, um, the servers' uniforms. What uh, are they in polos? Is it a casual type thing? Are they formally dressed? Um, do they have uh, you know server bins and so on that they're using? All that stuff conveys subtly. Uh, what your restaurant experience is, and that's all part of it. Goes well beyond just you know designing a restaurant and so on or operating a restaurant. It's part of the overall experience. Yeah, and I think you know the other piece to this, and we can't overlook is you know the service style and more specifically the servers, um, training staff, and things of that nature. I had a, a restaurant tour here in Chicago, a very um, high high profile one, tell me that the one thing she overlooked when she opened her restaurant. Um, was the fact that your servers are the only ambassador that's going to be interacting with your tables uh, of the restaurant brand. So, you know, if your link into your experience, your single link is that one server, um, then they do need to believe your branding and they do need to drink the Kool-Aid. They need to understand why you're doing what you're doing and they they need to be coached and trained in that. Um, So, you know, it's easy for you to say, well, I need five servers, hire minimum wage servers, you know, and and get them out there. But there is a a piece where they're really acting as the ambassador to your brand. And so you really have to put some thought into how that how that looks and feels and make sure it aligns with your concept. So David's point, you know, graphics, uniforms. Uh, the design of the restaurant, the service style, it's all part of it. Yeah, it's its in the details, right? And this comes up all the time on the show, attention to detail. It's the little things that will really create the big experience because it's its subtle. We don't even know what's happening. But when 
you compound all of these little things, they make a big, big difference. You cannot overlook the little things for sure. Yeah. And the thing that kills you, like one of them can kill the experience, right? Yeah. If everything else is there and you have one bad server or something, it's, it's really a rocking a, table. Yeah. It's, it's an unforgiving industry. <laughs> yes. Awesome. This has been a great conversation. Is there anything we have not discussed or overlooked that you want to leave with us before we wrap things up? Um, you know, the only thing I would say is, you know, certainly use, uh, hopefully your listeners will use us as a resource. So, you know, uh, anytime anybody has a concept or a question or something that they want some guidance on, um, you know, we're more than happy to act as a resource for you guys and, and have people contact us and ask us. And we're certainly open to talking to people and, and answering questions, uh, the, any questions they might have. What's the best way to connect? Uh, so uh, you can check out our website at www.okellycastbrack.com. Uh, that's O K E L L Y K A S P R A K. Um, and then our emails are real simple. It's David at O'Kelly Casprack and Belinda at O'Kelly Casprack. And our phone number is 312. Um, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> and this is episode 550. Head over to restaurant unstoppable.com slash 550. I'll have those links, uh, in the show notes, as well as a summary and links to any tools and services mentioned in today's conversation. And I wrap up every conversation. I don't think I gave you a heads up to this, but I'm going to throw it at you anyway. I wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. So who is one independent restaurant operator, somebody you've really been impressed by, maybe a past client, uh, call them out so they can be a future guest in the show and we can learn from them. All right. Um, I'm going to say Chef Laura Piper at Stock and Ledger Restaurant. Um, she's a passionate uh, chef that we recently completed uh, designing her restaurant, uh, but she is so uh, focused and passionate about making great food. Um, I think she's certainly somebody that uh, is a rising star. Drop her name on me one more time. Uh, Chef Laura Piper. Chef Laura Piper. Look out. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And uh, you already let the folks I know at home know how to connect. So I think uh, that's that. Thank you so much again for for coming on the show, for sharing your knowledge and making us all just a little bit better. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. All right. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> Cheers. All right. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Belinda O'Kelly and David Kasprak, thank you for coming on the show and sharing your specialized knowledge. Uh, this is episode 551. So head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 551. I'll have a link to the tools and resources mentioned in today's conversation. And also, do me a favor. If there was something that we talked about or discussed in today's conversation that you wish you had a little bit more information on. You wish we went a little bit deeper. Comment on the post in Instagram or Facebook and we'll tag Belinda O'Kelly and David Kasprick uh, in those comments uh, and maybe we can get them back on the show. Let me know what was most interesting to you in today's episode so we can go deeper. That's what I want to start doing here at Restaurant Unstoppable. I want to start being curious. Not just my own curiosity, but what's your curiosity? Let me answer the questions for you. Let me get these people back on the show. Uh, we'll go deeper. We'll really crush this stuff. We'll, we'll dissect the ins and outs, and I can start cata- categorizing, or sorry, cataloging all these conversations at the website 
and we can make it easier for you guys to really pinpoint the content that you want and where to find it. And that's kind of my vision for the future of Restaurant Unstoppable. So uh, I need your help to get there, though. We need this to be a two-way conversation. Uh, I'm here to serve you, and you guys need to take the initiative, uh, and I'm ready for you. So come after me. Let me have it. I can't wait, and this is going to be awesome. I can't wait. All right, guys. So... Like always, please do reach out to me, Eric at RestaurantUnstoppable.com, Instagram, Twitter, Eric Ketchatory, Facebook slash Restaurant Unstoppable. Tell me who you want to hear from. Tell me how I can best serve you. Keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. I love those reviews. They help me so much, and they really help with the ranking, too. But the best way to support this podcast in this mission of inspiring, empowering, and transforming our industry is by sharing it. Let's make sure everybody in our industry knows that this resource exists and is here to move us forward forward all right guys that's it for today thanks for sticking around this long i love you all and until next time peace out